You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Morning, church. How we feeling? We good? We're going to pause and stop for a real quick second and acknowledge our mamas. Everybody, come on now. We love you. Happy Mother's Day to my mom back in Oklahoma who is watching this online. Mama, I love you. You are amazing. We love our mamas. We honor you today for all that you continue to do and that all that you will do in the future. We're continuing in the book of Luke, chapter six. We'll be in verse 27 today. This series has been fantastic. I love that we're stopping for a moment and kind of working our way through a book, but at the same time, we've been here a hot minute And uh, Andy did a fantastic job as our guest preacher this last week, came in and killed it, talking about the blessings and woes that happened earlier in chapter six. And what's unique about this story is that Jesus is still teaching, right? We haven't stopped that teaching moment, so we're still in the level place, kind of making everything happen. And I'm, I'm excited to illustrate this upside down kingdom that we continue to talk about. So we're grateful that you're joining us. If you didn't know, Here at Kingsway, our mission is to become more like Jesus. But what's unique about that is we're all in different places, right? Nobody's perfect. Nobody's got it all figured out. Some of us do a little bit more than others. You don't have to share it with everybody when you do, but we're, we're figuring it out as we go. We're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. Some of you in here have been doing this long enough that you could probably get up here and preach this sermon today. And others of you in the room, you're still trying to figure out if Jesus really is the way that you should live and enjoy your life. I find it unique as we walk these roads that we learn some things. I remember going back to when I was 17 when I had just gotten to know Jesus. My youth pastor at the time actually did a trip with a few of us. We, we loaded up in a van in Oklahoma. We drove all the way, took like forever to Colorado. And this van had like 900 billion miles on it, right? It's church van. Um, and you get there and what we were doing is we had these 100 pound packs on our back. It had all of our clothes for the week. It had all of our food. It had all of our cooking utensils because we were going to cook over a fire. It had our sleeping quarters. Our tent was there. Everything that you could think of, we had packed it in this bag and we were going to strap it to our hips and our shoulders and we were going to go through the mountains of Colorado hiking for the next eight days. But the unique part is that when we got there first day, it won't make any difference to you, but we got to this place called Cut Hill and we, we, we set up camp. We get up and as we get up, the, the youth pastor hands a few of us a topographical map, which looks l- l- weird, because I've never seen one of these before in my life, and a compass, and says, we're here. The, the trailhead starts here. Good luck. I've never read a map like this before in my life. You could literally throw it, wad it up, throw it up. It would have meant the same thing. But we're sitting there trying to navigate this territory, trying to figure out how to get there. And the, the cool part is the, the youth pastor kind of just stepped back, right? He steps back and watches it happen. And if we start heading in the wrong direction, he just lets us. <laughs> it could have taken us four days just to get to the trailhead. And we only have eight days to spend here. I, I love that idea. Why? Because as Christians, as, as we try to become more like Jesus, we have the map. We have the compass. 
And some of us, as we are in our journey, we are going the wrong direction. And others of us have figured it out. For the most part, not everything. And what's unique is as we become more like Jesus, it starts to change us. It starts to change what we value. It starts to change who we are. And today as we get into our text, we talk about something very, very focused. So if you've got your Bibles or a Bible app, Luke chapter 6, verse 27, let's get into this. He says, but you, to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who mistreat you. And if today is your first day of figuring out who Jesus is, it's going to be a rough one. As, as plain as this text is, it's the most difficult thing to live out. It's very simple. It seems very practical. It seems like it would be easy to do until you actually apply it and you realize, oh my goodness gracious, this, this feels very different than what I do. This very, feels very different than the way I am wired. And it is unique because he says, you who are listening, this text actually reads more along the lines of, if anyone is still listening, and as a pastor, I can relate, because there's many times where I put people to sleep, and I'm like, hello? Anybody still listening? Right, Jesus is continuing to teach. If you're still listening, he says, love your enemies. For those listening to Jesus, this would have been radical. This would have been absolutely radical. You grew up in a time where you knew exactly who your enemies were. In fact, this had gone on for five, 600 years. Right, you got the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, you got Samaria smack dab in the middle of it, and there was a bunch of hatred and rivalry between them. So much so that they actually created routes around the outside of Samaria to travel back and forth. They would not go through, why? Because there's fear of your life, because there's hatred towards each other. You might lose everything you own, you might get robbed or mugged, and you just won't have to deal with it. So you made ways around, and what I think is unique about this is we're 2,000 years later and we still don't have a good grasp on what this means. Behavioral psychologists confirm that once you mentally move someone from that loving point in your life to hating them, your posture towards them actually shifts. Your perspective also shifts. Even the good things, right? Something good happens to them and you're turning around being like, well, I can't believe it. You turn it negative, right? Why? Because we're naturally bent towards frustration towards this person. Your mind is turned against them. You only see the negative. It becomes very, very difficult to change that perspective on somebody that you do not like. It's even harder to turn that full circle and genuinely love them. And as I was researching for this passage, I found a lot of people actually saying, well, there's, there's, a, there's, there's at least some good in every person, so find that little bit of good inside that one person and just kind of love that little part of them. Jesus didn't say tolerate somebody. We're good at that one, amen? That's not loving them. And that's not what he said. Point blank, very specific. What is in direct opposition of my human nature Jesus says, love them. So what does it mean to love my enemies? Agape is the word here that is used for the word love. And, and I wish he would have given like a secondary clause, like love your enemies as long as they love you, or love your enemies up to twice a day and then you're allowed to do whatever. He doesn't do that. He says, love your enemies. 
And, and working with middle school students, it's unique to me because they'll come to me and be like, I love you, Pastor D. And then they'll turn around and I love pizza. You're like, huh? <laughs> Our word for love doesn't really help us to interpret what this word agape means. Agape is given with no expectation of return. It's striving for the betterment of the other person. There's no ill will. Your mindset towards them is completely loving. Everything else disappears and you want what's absolutely best for them. You have their best intentions in mind. And I insert a clause here because it's Mother's Day, right? Moms, for the most part, I can't say every mom lives in this world, but many of, most of the time, many moms get this idea. You agape your children. They are in various stages of life and children are defiant. It's natural. And depending on their defiance, your agape is tested, right? When they're little, when they're younger, right? They don't call it terrible twos or treacherous threes because it's fun. It's not fun, right? You become a jungle gym and the only thing they want is muffins and you don't have any muffins left, but they're gonna go nuts until you get them some. They don't wanna go to bed. They don't wanna do what you ask. You tell them to do that, no! That's real fun. I love you. <laughs> and then they get into middle school and you ask them three times to do it, four times to do it, eight times to do it, 15 times to do it, and then 16th time they blow up at you. And now it's your fault that they didn't do what you asked them to do. <laughs> well, that one's fun. I know, I love middle school. And then they get in high school and all they want is freedom. They want nothing to do with you. You are keeping them alive. <laughs> they have a roof over their head. They potentially have a freedom mobile, we call it a car. In the student world, we call this the slow breakup process. Because as you bring a child into the world, you're trying to raise them up to condition them and teach them how to be valuable members to society. And hopefully along the way, we're teaching them about this amazing God that we serve. All the things that Jesus has done for them, but you'll recognize that your kiddos, as they grow up, their defiance is different in different ways. You still want what's best for them. You still unconditionally Love them, and Jesus says love your enemies. What he's saying is it's not this sappy, emotional stuff. It's a conscious act to treat our enemies like family. That's what it means to love your enemies. That's agape love. It's unconditional. It's not pastor pizza stuff. No matter what they do to you, you love them. So that's what Loving your enemies means, but who are my enemies, right? Who are my enemies? This Greek word is ekthros. Everybody say ekthros. Yeah, y'all do that somewhere else. That sounds weird. <laughs> it means those who oppose you, those who are hostile to you. They want you to suffer or fail. And we live in a world that is so polarizing. We see this all the time. Right, people go from zero to a thousand with their temperament really, really fast these days. And some moments it's, it's good because you're in defense and you're trying to do what's right and do what's best, but many times it's out of our frustration, right? 
Our enemies are people who don't like us, right? People who we try to avoid. The people that trigger us, people who annoy us, and potentially get on our nerves. And I don't know about you, but I have now lived in the state of Indiana for about six years now, and uh, I like, I, I make enemies a lot. That's the best way to state it. So you're driving around here in, in, in the Avon area or anywhere on the northwest side of whatever, and you'll run into these things we like to call a roundabout. <laughs> you ever driven through one of those? I'll pull up to the roundabout and there's a person right in front of me and it's like Frogger all over again, it's just happening, and they're trying to figure out where their place is and I'm looking at them like, go! Move your car! I'm getting a little hostile. Luckily, I'm screaming inside of my own vehicle and nobody else could hear me unless my children are with me and I'm teaching them great habits. <laughs> but we're, I'm literally behind this person and you know, car two, four, eight, 15, 35, when are you gonna go? Are you gonna move? Are, are, is your car broken? Do I need to get out and push you? What is happening? Please move your car. Anybody? We lived in Indiana long enough, y'all should know how to drive about a roundabout, and if you don't, this is not legal advice, but hear me, just send it. Just see what happens. Just go. I, I need to calm down. All right, I'm joking-ish. But we get into these moments where my life would be so much better if they would just They could just figure it out. Somebody else, right? And people look at us the same way. We have enemies. Sometimes it gets really difficult or really close to home. We turn our spouse into an enemy. They don't help out as much as I think they should. I always have to ask them to do this. Why do I have to babysit them? Why can't they just figure it out on their own? I've never been told that. Right? Our job is more important than our family. Or dating was really easy. What happened? For, for some of us in the room, an enemy is that person who literally has nothing else to talk about but politics. They don't know how to talk about anything else. It's literally what surrounds their life. Or I see all the time, an enemy is that perfect person who has their life all put together and everything is amazing. And, and it's, it's, it's jealousy, but you make them an enemy. Or, or flip that, and it's the person who has nothing positive to say about their life. It's always negative. Everything is wrong. Woe is me. And Jesus is very clear. He says, love them. Love them. So if our mission is to become more like Jesus, what I would tell you is to become more like Jesus means to love like Jesus. So not only to love our enemies, but it says do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who hate you. Right? The script flips a little bit. And now it's to do good to those who are considered our enemies. As in no retaliation, right? This is an eye for an eye society. You do something to me and there's an expectation that I'm going to reciprocate that same thing. We still do it today. You mess with me, right? That's why we don't do pranks in middle school because if you do a prank here, it's gonna, it, and, and, and it keeps going, it doesn't stop, right? And, and the hardest part about this is we recognize if you believe in Jesus, 
and you put your faith out there for people to see and to recognize, people will flat out hate you for what you believe. It'll happen. And if it hasn't, it will. Or there's a piece that we're gonna talk about here in a second. I, I, I drive a pickup truck. I love it, it's, it's fun to drive. But I'll admit, um, I already told you, I'm a fantastic driver. <laughs> but I'm not afraid to put my faith out there for people to see. So years ago, way before the vehicle that I have now, I got the license tag that says Pastor D on it. I wanted people to know that I'm a pastor. I thought, anyway. <laughs> I did not think anything would come of this, but come to find out, it's become a target for others' hatred, right? I, I've been run off the road. I've had the bird flipped at me so many times, I think they're all flying south. <laughs> I've had choice words spoken and reiterated in my direction. I go park in a, like a grocery store parking lot. People will run their carts into my vehicle. There, there's a lot of hatred and frustration. And, and I know it's these individuals because every now and then I get to, to catch them in the act or I get to participate in whatever is happening in this moment and usually they're like, I love you, you're so amazing. No, they're not like that. <laughs> there are some choice words, some choice actions and it's usually always followed by the word pastor. There have been many times where I thought, you know what, I should get a different tag but then I'm reminded to do good to those who hate me. And this brings up two different conversations that we need to have. The first one in this upside down kingdom conversation I wanna have is what I call the right place at the right time. Now you might not call it that. You might call it the wrong place at the wrong time. But often the hatred that we receive from somebody else is misplaced. It's misplaced. See, there's stress in one area or another of their life. There's a situation that unfolds, and all of a sudden, you find yourself in that place where you have triggered that hatred that is coming out in them. You find yourself in the right place at the right time. When someone has targeted me for my tag, there have been a few moments, not a lot, and I wish I had the moment to do it for every single one of them. But there's a moment where I get to pause and I get to listen Hey, why'd you do that? Hey, what would cause you to act like that? And I recognized I didn't do something to them. Somebody else, whether it's in the church or, or a situation, created tension in their life and now every time they hear the word pastor, it's bitter. And so they turned that towards me and I had the opportunity in that moment, instead of getting triggered and retaliating, to show them the love of Jesus to do good to the person who chose to do wrong to me. You're in the right place at the right time, and when that happens, I urge you to step into that and show them the love of Jesus that they deserve when they are struggling to figure that out. The second thing is what I like to call a comfortable Jesus. A comfortable Jesus. Most often in our society today, we, we don't like confrontation, we don't like labels, we're not okay with these things and so we avoid them at all costs. The people around them, they probably don't even know that they're trying to become more like Jesus at all. In fact, they're just kinda going about their day, not allowing 
their relationship to, with Jesus to define anything that's happening around them. And you'll look into this, you'll see typically a modified version of Jesus that is controlled, that is comfortable, and is tame. But that's not what I see here. We've gotten too comfortable. It's time to let people really know that Jesus loves them. I see a radical form of goodness and love that transcends humanity and allows someone else through their hurt to meet something good in their life. Jesus isn't passive. He's not telling you to fall prey to the world or the desires or the thoughts that come. He says, I want you to see the love the Father has poured out on me. And the same love that he showed us on the cross, he invites us into every day when we get up. So how do we show the world God's goodness and love if Jesus isn't evident in our lives? How do we do that? So Jesus will put you in moments to do good to those who hate you so that he can be glorified. And you grow in that relationship as you become more like him. So to become more like Jesus, it's grace, not hate. Grace, not hate. Continues on, bless those who curse you. And I thought this was unique. This is not like somebody who says profanity at you or saying words. This is literally like, like making a hex curse thingy. It's unique. It's probably something that we are a little bit removed from in our society, but what I can say from this is that there is revenge and retaliation. They want you to hurt. They are literally seeking after harm for you. This is an eye for an eye society. We've just said that. And if you go back and look at the Levitical law of the Old Testament, if something happened, there was an expectation, expected return that was equal to that value. And now today we are confronted with this idea and Jesus says, do not curse them back. Do not treat them as they treat you. Bless them. But what does it mean to bless? To bless is to speak well of those who actively want to hurt us. Three or four weeks ago, I'm driving down 465, and I'm just watching this interaction take place. There are two cars, a truck and a car, and, and, and obviously something has happened because they are literally like at each other, cutting each other off, right? One brake checking the next one, that kind of stuff, and you're like, what in the world is going on? And, and like any good citizen, instead of calling for help, I just stepped back and watched. And as I'm watching this unfold, finally, one hits the other, like boom. Sorry, that was loud. And you're like, whoa. I'm being punked? What is, is this is a prank TV show? Is this, is this legit? Like, I only see this on YouTube, right? But in this moment, it, that's not it, right? They both then proceed to get out of their cars after they've run into each other, and now they're literally on the side of the highway in a full-on fist fight. And I'm like, this is, this is epic. <laughs> I should probably do something, but I, I didn't. But I'm looking at this moment and I ask this question. When somebody comes after you, there's a natural expectation for you to go after them. There's a retaliatory mindset in our society today, but when does it end? Where does it stop? 
Where does it quit? At what point do you turn the tide and okay, it's time to bless you, right? In the midst of frustration that's going on, my first inclination is like, okay, let me offer you a blessing. No, it's like, ah, no, I didn't do that, just kidding. I'm, I'm a pastor, I don't act like that, shame on you. Bless those who curse you. Be a blessing to all people around you. I work, uh, I work alongside middle school students and high school students and they really do well with this about 71% of the time. It's like passing. 29% of the time, it's like all drama. And if you know anything about drama, or maybe you can go back and reminisce about your days and your time and the drama that ensued, there's nothing good that comes from it. I get my people to like my ideologies and my thinking to go against you and you and I can't believe you said that and shame on you and then we come over here and these people are doing the same thing over here and I can't believe you and I'm gonna tie that person in too, why not? Drama over and over and over again. They aren't thinking about blessing. And many times when somebody comes after me, I'm not thinking about blessing either. And what happens is you take a messy situation and when you don't offer blessing, you make it messier. And we have to remember, no one is perfect. No one's got it all figured out. We're still learning as we go. So when someone goes out of their way to ruin your life, to harm you or to hurt you, to go against what you say or what you think or what you believe, to become more like Jesus, bless the mess. Bless the mess. And I already said that, but I'll say it again. When you don't bless the mess, you make the mess messier. And finally, in this verse 28, it says, pray for those who mistreat you. Hold on, God. So you're asking me to love my enemies, to be good, to bless, and now you're asking me to pray for people who mistreat me? You want me to come to you with everything that's going on? I, I, I don't know what's happening, but if like someone is hurting me, someone hates me, someone is mistreating me, my prayers are not typically like, God, let your love be poured out on them and their life and may it be evident to all. No, I'm like, God, smite them. Let's do some smiting. I like the smiting idea. Right, I go to Psalm 109 where, where David is talking through things and, and it's like, you know, number their days, make them less, right? Take away their leadership, seize all their assets, take everything away from them. Let strangers have all their stuff. May they never have kindness or pity again. Maybe that's a little too harsh. But I recognize it's my human nature, as we all recognize it, it's human nature to go against this idea. But Jesus says, come to me. If you're being mistreated before you go anywhere else, come to me. And I don't know about you, but the one thing as a pastor I've learned is as I progress in my prayer life, when I am heated or upset, when I feel like I've not been heard and somebody's not listening to me and life is not fair in that moment, 
Over time, as I've learned to go to Jesus, I recognize that he calms me down. He gives me the ability to walk into a messy, difficult situation with grace, with blessing, with love. That's why it's so upside down. Everything else around you says, go this way, and Jesus says, no, go this way. It's much better for us. That's why making Jesus' teaching that he, he gives us right here, it's, it's so foundational to our faith. And it's fascinating to me when you actually watch it happen. If you've ever actually seen it take place where instead of retaliating, you watch somebody else bless or somebody else love or somebody else go to prayer or go to God over a situation, it actually pauses you in that moment and allows you to realize how big God is. I go back to 2017. On Palm Sunday in Egypt, two churches were attacked with bombs and it killed over 50 people within their congregations. Just hours after the blast, amidst pain, grief, and outrage, Pastor George got up and preached a three-point sermon. His three points were, we love you, we're praying for you, and thank you. As he closed his final point, he said, we love you because even murderers and thieves love those who love them, but only followers of Jesus are taught to love our enemies. And then he goes on to close his message. He says, we're praying for you because he reasoned if a terrorist could taste the love of God even one time, it would drive hatred from his heart. Could you do that? Could you do that? Amidst your hurt and your pain, amidst your mistreatment, can you love as Pastor George loves? Can you love as Jesus loves? Without a vengeful heart or spite, without any smiting amidst your brokenness, can we model the love that Jesus modeled for us? See, I don't understand everything, but what I do know is if I'm being mistreated and I have a lot to say of the matter, Jesus says, come to me. Tell me all about it. Let me in on it. And I will help you see that I love them too. To become more like Jesus, you gotta spend time with him. You gotta spend time with him. And then from here, Jesus gives us three action examples of how this is lived out. So in verse 29, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one also. This is like a, a public backhand a disgrace in front of others. It's embarrassing. It's not easy to live with. And then it goes on, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them as well. This is unique, because in Bible times, they only had like three, four clothing garments, and if you give two of those away, it ain't good for anybody. I'm supposed to alleviate their shame by taking on shame. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. In college, I had a professor, Mark Moore, who taught our Acts class. And I remember him saying very clearly that 
He was okay. If somebody really needed something more than he did, he would either loan it to them or let them have that. And I watched it modeled out because at one point, I see him riding his bicycle to, to, the, to the, the college campus. He's got a car. He let somebody else borrow it because they needed it more than he did. And it changed my mindset because I've been raised on this idea to go get mine and what's mine is mine. And if somebody needs to borrow something, it's really hard to let it go, right? And if someone has burned me, if somebody's mine, there's no way they are getting anything of mine. And Jesus says, love them. He says, be good to them. He says, bless them. And early on in our faith, as we become more like Jesus, our natural response doesn't look like Jesus. It doesn't. If someone hits me for my faith, I'm really not keen on letting it happen again. If someone needs clothes, my naked shame, which it's, it's, it's unique to kind of cross-reference this because it goes all the way back to Genesis in the beginning, the shame that came from being clothed. I'm supposed to give them what little I have? And like I said, ain't nobody wanna see that. And then you continue on. Give to everyone who asks. Like I'm a, I'm a, I'm a student pastor. I, I could promise you our community does a lot of fundraisers. And we got middle school students coming in and they're a part of everything, this, that, and the other, like give to those who, who have need, right? If I truly did that, you know how many Girl Scout cookies I would have? <laughs> I'd have a whole house full. I'd also be broke, but I'd have a whole house full of Girl Scout cookies. See guys, I'm prone to protect myself. I think all of us in this room, our human nature, we're prone to protect ourselves, to hang on to our stuff, to consume and consume and consume, and ultimately that consumption will consume you. And as your faith deepens and matures, you start to grasp how long, how high, how wide, and how deep the love of God is. You start to become more like Jesus. You start to live out these commands and love your enemy starts to actually make sense. And then in verse 31, do unto others as you would have them do to you. Treat people like Jesus so they'll treat you back like Jesus, a community of faith. He goes on to say, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who, do, who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. The world is already doing the things that Jesus is asking just from a different perspective. The love that we are supposed to live out looks very, very different. We are to model it differently. Jesus is offering you and I an opportunity to change our perspective. See, the enemy in your life wants to do two things. One, rob you of hope. Two, leave you stuck in your own selfishness right where you are. And we need to stop doing things out of our flesh. Start experiencing his love so that we can give that love away. To turn it back to everybody in the room, is there anyone in your life that you 
are angry at, you are hurt by, or frustrated with. And maybe God is calling you to love them, to pray for them, and to never expect anything from them in return. As followers of Christ, we get up every day. And my perspective is repayment. You hurt me, I hurt you. And Jesus' perspective is the debt has already been paid. He says in verse 35, love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High because he is a kind, he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. See, he knows, he knows that we cannot love like him without him. But if we get a glimpse of his love, we can share that love with those around us. I love this little idea. God's love is the kind of love that loves the unlovable. Say that 10 times fast. You truly want to become more like Jesus, it means you have to love as God loves. And then in verse 36, he wraps it up. Be merciful just as your father is merciful. See, mercy gives you the right to get them back. You are justified in being able to repay them. You can lash out if you want to. You're allowed to, but instead, you offer compassion and forgiveness. It's the same mercy that we were shown on the cross. Ephesians chapter two, verse four and five says, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And Titus chapter three, verse three to five says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing and the rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's not what we do. He calls us to live as, as though we show the world who he is. But it is not us that saves us. It is him in his mercy who is justified by our sin for punishment. And he says, no, I'll take that for you. I'll give you compassion and forgiveness. But I'm gonna challenge you. I'm not just gonna give it to you. I'm gonna expect you to go into the world and teach it to everybody else. It's an upside down kingdom because he loves us so much that he gives over and over and over again. So in lieu of God's mercy, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. And pray for those who mistreat you. I'm gonna invite you to stand. We're gonna sing one last song together. Maybe today you've been processing through this and maybe God is turning in your world and, and you need to, 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 to do something with it. You need to talk to somebody or work something out. And then we'd love to talk to you over at one of the K tables. But beyond that, I recognize this. Oftentimes we are what get in the way of God's message getting out to the world. 
And so in this next song as we sing, we're asking to remove a little bit of us and we're asking for more of him. Because the more you get of God, the more you start to see life the way God intended it to be. And the more you start to understand that upside down kingdom we are really called into. We've been blessed. We have an opportunity to become more like Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, it is in this moment that we thank you for all that you do, all that you've done. We are so grateful. And God, sometimes it feels like this is, is so practical, so simple. Three words, love your enemies. And yet I find myself on a daily basis feeling like I have failed. But I love this idea that we are giving new mercies every morning. That we get back up and we can try again. To try to live our life according to the way that you called us to. And God, I simply beg you to allow us to see that we need more of you and less of me. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. All God's people said, amen.